Well, stand with me and turn in your Bibles. I hope you have one to the Gospel of John chapter 10 as we continue our ongoing series on Lord's Day mornings through John's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find our text today on page 896. Uh, we want to look at the first 21 verses of John 10 together this morning, so let me uh, read them and, and pray for our time and we will begin together. So listen once again as the Lord is speaking to you now through His perfect voice. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves, and the sheep, and they flee. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. My gracious Lord, our souls long for your salvation today. We do hope in your word. Let your steadfast love come to us and your salvation according to your promise in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are certain questions, aren't there, that call for answers that not only reveal what you believe about Christianity, I suppose answers to such questions reveal even in and of themselves if you are a Christian. 
Perhaps the best example of such a question is, who is Jesus? A historian named Stephen Nichols wrote a book, a popular level book, years ago that was titled, Jesus Made in America. Looking how Jesus was portrayed through various eras of American history. And in one summary section, he says this, For some Americans, Jesus is the consummate best friend and lover. For others, he's strong and mighty, ready for the defense of the weak. For others still, he's a guru, a wise and enlightened sage. For American Roman Catholics, he's first the Savior on a cross, bloodied and suffering. For American mainline Protestants, he's nearly angelic, soft and beloved by children. For countercultural rebels, he's a crazed malcontent, hurling the establishment in the form of money changers from the temple. For the inimitable Johnny Cash, he's the greatest cowboy of them all. I wonder what words you would use to describe Jesus, what answers you would give to that most significant question. Who is Jesus? And I'm sure many of you have been with us long enough in our study of John's gospel that you know this book is here to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Even recent studies that we've had in the past few weeks have given us more information about how we can answer that question of who is Jesus. You think just a few studies back at the end of chapter 8, Jesus is there nearby the temple, in the temple actually, with the religious leaders, engaging them in this controversy over who really is their father. And at the end of that passage in John chapter 8, he utters this statement that has seismically significant spiritual import when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And kids, you might remember that the religious leaders, they raced to the rocks after they heard that because they were ready to stone Jesus because they knew what he meant by saying before Abraham was, I am. But he's Yahweh come in the flesh. Because this is a gospel written to us that we might know Jesus is the Son of God. But what the Gospel of John is so often doing is it's not telling us merely answers to the question of who Jesus is. But it's also, even in our text today, advancing our thoughts and hearts into another question that's equally as important. What is Jesus like? It's one thing to be able to ask and answer the question, who Jesus is. We also want to know what Jesus is like. And what we come to today in John chapter 10 is one of the most beloved passages that answers that question in all of Scripture. What is Jesus like? And of course, when we want to answer such questions, the best way we can answer such questions is just using words that Jesus used to say who he is, to say what he's like. These golden truths that are before us in our theme this morning is just simply the good news of a good shepherd. That's all you're meant to see in our passage today, the good news, the gospel about a good shepherd. But you need to connect it to what's come before because you might notice if you glance down to the last part of our passage again, there's a question that concludes the text, verse 21, can a demon open the eyes of the blind. You might remember from two weeks ago in chapter 9, that's exactly what Jesus did. He healed, a ma- he healed a man who had been born blind. 
And it was this messianic miracle worked out in the observation of all who were there. It showed that Jesus was indeed the long-expected Messiah. The long-awaited-for Savior had finally arrived. And students, you might remember, the religious leaders, what did they do? They're so angry, they're so irate at Jesus breaking their man-made Sabbath regulations that they miss the truth of who Jesus is, this truth that's right in front of them. Plain and obvious it should be for all to see. And in rejecting the revelation of the Messiah, what they're doing, as Jesus picks up in our text today, is actually proving this, that they are false shepherds in Israel. They're blind guides to God's people. Children, you might say it simply, they're bad shepherds. Well, what's needed? A good shepherd. And a good shepherd has been provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to understand there's this rich Old Testament background to everything we're going to see today. We don't have enough time to get into all of it. Maybe just one passage to fix upon your minds is Ezekiel chapter 34, where after talking about all of the sins of the shepherds in Israel at the time, the Lord says there's a time coming in the future when he would come like a shepherd to his people to rescue them and to lead them. And before our eyes today is the good news of a good shepherd. Stunning enough, are these bad shepherds going to find out that not only are they false leaders there in Israel, by the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear to them that they're not even sheep in Israel. So I want that to be in the back of your mind, perhaps even the forefront of your heart today. Could I have thought my entire life that I'm in the sheepfold? When in reality, you're discovering today that you haven't yet been brought in. So we all want to come in. The text has three simple parts. You could note this simply, verses 1 through 6 is the analogy, verse 7 through 18 is the explanation of the analogy, and verse 19 through 21 is the response to the explanation of the analogy. We'll just walk through it in three simple ways, first of which is the metaphor. So look again, verse 1, chapter 10. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold door, but climbs in by another way, well, that man is a thief and is a robber. So kids, you need to picture some of that ancient agricultural background, because I don't know anybody in our congregation that's a shepherd. I don't know how many of you know, know, know in your own life, real shepherds. But it's normal, of course, in that time, in ancient Israel, that you would meet shepherds here, there, and everywhere. And probably the most common practice was among shepherds, because they tended to be quite poor, is what they would do is they would pull together their resources, they would build a sheep fold. Four simple walls, like a fence that goes around, there'd be one singular door. And often, because they were poor, they would pull their resources together and they would hire a working hand that overnight would stand there in the doorway to keep thieves and robbers out, to keep wild animals out. And in the morning, each shepherd would come, stand there at the gate, and then they would call forth their own sheep. Sheep would hear the voice of the shepherd and come out. Well, that's clearly the background notice of, of this passage. The metaphor continues, verse 2 through 3. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name 
and he leads them out. You'll see in verse 4 and 5, the sheep, because they know their shepherd's voice, they don't listen to the voice of the stranger. So this is the metaphor Jesus is giving there to the religious leaders and the Jews listening to him, and we're not terribly surprised, are we, by the response. Look at verse 6, the figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. And it's rather shocking. It should shock us, I do think, to to know that these Jewish leaders, of all the metaphors from the Old Testament Jesus could have used, that they still can't grasp and gain, is this one of the Lord is a shepherd. It's perhaps the most singular in its constancy metaphor that you're going to find all throughout the Bible. We've sung already this morning multiple psalms that talk about God as the shepherd and his people as the sheep. It was from the very beginning of Scripture normal for those that would lead God's people to be referred to as shepherds, under-shepherds, as they cared for God's sheep. And here comes Jesus using this shepherding metaphor, and the text is telling us it makes no sense whatsoever to people who should have known better. I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon before from a text or you've heard the Bible read or taught or explained and there is a sense of which, or you've heard it before. It's somewhat familiar to you, but you still can't grasp it with the eyes and the heart of faith. And sometimes that's true that it's the fault of the teacher and the preacher making it unclear. But sometimes it could be true that your lack of spiritual understanding of a spiritual truth reveals the degree to which your heart is naturally blinded by sin, just as it is here. So he's given them a metaphor. They have no clue what he's talking about. Which leads us to the second section, which is the bulk of the passage, which is the message. Because what does he do in verse 7 through 18? But begin to tell them this gospel of the good shepherd... And he begins by uttering, students, the third of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So kids, you might remember if you've been with us in recent weeks, he's already told us, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. Well, who is Jesus? Those are good answers. Well, the third I am statement, notice comes, verse seven, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, if you were a shepherd in the ancient context in which Jesus is speaking, and perhaps you kind of taking your sheep out to pasture during the day, you wandered far enough away from your kind of more permanent sheepfold. Well, what you would normally do is grab thorns, thistles, briars, some kind of temporary fencing that you would construct this, construct this temporary you know, sheepfold overnight. And then what you would do as the shepherd, you would lay down there in front of the door to, again, protect the sheep. In a very real sense, the shepherd became the gate. The shepherd became the door. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell them here in this gospel that he's proclaiming. Not just, I am the door, but I am the shepherd. And what you need to see as the text unfolds is a few different truths. I want to kind of bring them out for your attention to make them rather simple, I trust, for you to understand this, this greatness and glory that belongs to Jesus is a good shepherd. The first thing you need to see is that Jesus leads the sheep. Jesus leads the sheep. Because you notice verse 3, 
He's talking about in the metaphor, he calls his own sheep by name and then he leads them out. And then if you glance down to verse 9, he says, Again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. And then if you glance further down to our text today, what you'll see in verse 16 is he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So what's he saying? I lead the sheep in and out. I lead them to green pastures of truth. I lead them to still waters of rest. Which then gives some sense to that twice repeated fourth I am statement in John's gospel. You notice Again, verse 11 and 14, how it begins, I am the good shepherd. Then verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Students, when you see Jesus talk about himself and he uses adjectives, modifiers, what kind of king he is, what kind of savior he is, it's very important that you pay attention to what the adjective is. Because of course it's no accident that he describes himself the way he does. So why does Jesus not say, I'm the gracious shepherd? That's true. Why does he not say, I'm the faithful shepherd? We know that's true too. That I'm the courageous, caring, kind, compassionate shepherd. Why doesn't he say that? That's all true too. Why does he say, I'm the good shepherd? You know, good is normally is used here in the New Testament. It speaks of this kind of moral purity, beauty, and, and excellence. Well, that's true of Jesus. But the context actually makes it clear that Jesus is meaning to preach this gospel by way of contrast. Because what we've seen, as we already said at the beginning, is that the religious leaders likened in this passage to thieves and robbers. What are they? Bad shepherds. There are shepherds that are out there, aren't there? Shepherds that are copycats. Jesus is saying, I am the model shepherd. There are shepherds out there that are false. Jesus is the true shepherd. There are shepherds out there who are bad. And Jesus leads them like a good shepherd. He not only leads the sheep, you'll notice he gives life to the sheep. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, it's quite clear that the religious leaders, those bad shepherds there in Israel, they're thieves and robbers that are leading God's people only along that broad path of destruction and death. And Jesus says, no, I came. My mission is that my people would have life, not just a small amount, not even a large amount. What he's saying is an eternally abundant amount of life is what I came to bring to my people. And I hope you understand that as you leave today, you you, you reckon with the reality that you're being shepherded by somebody or something. And there are all kinds of somebodies and some things in this life that can shepherd us on that broad path to death and destruction, that they don't bring about that life that they actually promise. Think about some of the ordinary ones in our own place and time. Lust, passion, promise pleasure. 
but in the end only bring death and destruction to homes and relationships. Money promises comfort and security, but only radically shrivels your dependence upon God. That power and influence, they promise authority, but that authority, it so easily shrinks your humility before the Lord that grabs his smile. But Jesus is saying here, I came to bring you life. Life that is so full, life that is so overflowing, life that is so abundant that it's going to stretch out for all eternity and every second is going to be better than the one that preceded the second before. He leads his sheep. He gives life to his sheep. And you'll notice how he gives life to his sheep. It's by laying down his life. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The end of verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. We have a few men in the church going through officer training right now to potentially serve as elders here at Redeemer. And one of the books that they have to read is simply titled The Shepherd Leader. And it was written about 10 years ago, and the author, when he began to write the book, he visited a shepherd's area in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And he was talking with those shepherds about their life, caring for the sheep, and and learning various insights from the shepherd's life that naturally and even biblically apply to the work of being an elder. And that book was so successful that on its 10-year anniversary, the publisher wanted to publish a, a second volume. And so, and he was preparing this second volume, he went back to Lancaster County to see what was going on with the sheep. And as he came in, as he recounts it in the book, he noticed that there are no sheep around. And so he asked the owners, well, where'd the sheep go? And they said, we sold them. We only have goats now. Because the sheep are just too hard. And kids, I hope you know that sheep are hard. They're not very smart. They're not very fast. They're often not very enjoyable. But what do you have here? A good shepherd who doesn't give up on his sheep. You have a good shepherd that gives everything for his sheep. Can you imagine the depth of love that Jesus Christ has for sinners like you? That he would gladly go die in the place of sinners like you. Because isn't that what he exactly says? Notice what he says down in Verse 18, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. There's willing sacrifice. There's even eager sacrifice when you think of what Jesus Christ did at that cursed cross of Calvary. Because there's the good shepherd of the sheep being what? Treated like a sinful sheep. Taking all of the iniquity and transgressions that his people have committed, will commit, takes him into his own very heart, and because he lived perfectly in obedience to God's law, he goes as the sacrificial sheep, spotless and unstained, the Lamb of God that can take away the sins of his people. So therefore, when he spills his perfect, spotless blood, he's purchasing, isn't he? He's buying back his sheep. Why? That they might have life, and life abundantly, But the text makes it clear to us that, of course, the good shepherd didn't stay dead. He not only gives life to his sheep, 
By laying down his life for sheep, he also lives for his sheep. You see what he says in verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. He says, 18 picks up from where we just left off. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You know, to those hearing Jesus in that moment, it really, in in many ways, wouldn't have been too radical to hear about a shepherd willing to lay down his life for the sheep. You know, you glance back to Verse 12, they understand what he's saying there, these hired hands that would often be in charge of the sheep overnight. You know, the lions and tigers and bears show up. They realize, I don't really care for those sheep. I'm out of here. But, but a shepherd who cares for the sheep, well, he would die for them. But that's a rather ordinary thing to say. It's altogether much more extraordinary to say, not only do I die for the sheep, will I die for the sheep, I'm going to die for the sheep, but that I'm going to raise myself up from death. Because someone can only say that if they have the authority of the Father who rules over death. Even holding as Jesus is depicted in the book of Revelation, the keys of death and Hades in his hands. Because of course he couldn't stay dead. Death had no wages that he couldn't pay. The grave had no hold of him that he couldn't break. He emptied death of its sting, so therefore it's not just sufficient to say in the fullness of the gospel, Jesus died for the sheep but that he, he lives for the sheep. And even that new life that's promised to us in Christ Jesus, we can receive now if we listen to his voice. That's really the final part of this gospel message you want to see. As he leads the sheep, he gives life to the sheep, laying down his life for them, living for the sheep. His sheep listen to his voice. Isn't that what he says Simply, verse 14 continues, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Skip down to verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, I've told you before, I love these stories of old missionaries. I love the zeal and sacrifice they had to preach Christ where he wasn't known. One such man was named Peter Scott in the mid-19th century. He felt the Lord call him to go preach the gospel in East Africa, a place that was completely unreached by the gospel at the time. And he sailed down there, and once he landed, it wasn't too long later that he was struck sick with malaria. And according to the medical council of the time, he needed to recoup by sailing back to Britain. So he sailed back, and once he had recouped, he he wanted to sail back to East Africa, took his brother John with him this time. Not long after they landed, this time John got sick, and he actually died there in East Africa. Not long after that, Peter's health broke once again, so he sailed back to Britain to recover. And as his health was broken, his, his spirit in serving Christ was actually broken as well. He, he thought he was done uh, preaching the gospel, but then one day in the Lord's providence, he went to a graveyard, a cemetery in London, and he stopped by the tombstone of the famous explorer and missionary David Livingston. And he saw etched into that tombstone the very words of John chapter 10, verse 16. I have sheep who are not of this fold. 
I must bring them in also. And so he went back to East Africa. He established the African Inland Mission, whose fruit in the Lord's harvest has far outlived Peter Scott's life. But what is Jesus saying to the Jews that are listening to him there in Jerusalem? I have sheep who aren't here in Jerusalem. I have Gentiles that belong to me. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Foreigners. I have people as far away as Collin County, Texas that belong to me. And what does he say? I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go die for them. I'm going to speak to them through my word and spirit. My voice of grace in the gospel. And they will hear me. I wonder if you've heard him. His sheep will listen to his voice. And it's not surprising that people there have no idea what to do with what Jesus said. He's given the metaphor. They don't understand it. He's given the message. This gospel of the good shepherd. The meaning of the metaphor. And you'll notice in our final section, verse 19 through 21, the mystery. Because we're told that a division among the Jews came again because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And all I want to say here on this final three verse section, is it ought to strike us how when you read the gospel narratives, and it's happening, isn't it, over and over in John's gospel, that the good shepherd himself is there before the people, having just performed a messianic miracle that ought to get everyone's attention, preaching words that all Israelites were longing to hear based on the prophecy of Ezekiel, that the shepherd is here. And many people are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. When you, you preach the gospel, when you share the truth about Jesus, don't be surprised that it will do that, what happens in our passage. It divides people. There's always that radical gap that exists when Christ is proclaimed. To some, it's an aroma of life. To some, it's a stench of death. Some will receive it. Some will reject it. Which side of that divide, that gospel mystery, which side do you fall today? There's good news in a gospel of this good shepherd. You know, I think the older I get, there are these few books that I read when I was young that just stick with you in a way that you can't seem to see life and ministry without the lens of that book always on your mind. And If you've been here long enough, uh, you've probably heard me mention before a book by a man named Isaac Ambrose that was simply titled Looking Unto Jesus, and it's just many hundreds of pages that speaks about how looking unto Jesus is, quote, the epitome of a Christian's happiness. 
So I pulled it out earlier this week, knowing that in a book of this length, as he's telling us to look unto Jesus, and John's gospel is here that we might see Jesus, surely Isaac Ambrose had something to say about the good shepherd who is Jesus. And he, he does. He eventually gets to a point when he's meditating on Christ's death on the cross, and he says this, quote, Let not Christ be buried without a sermon neither, and let the text be this, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And he doesn't stop there. He continues by saying, And in the end of the sermon, let the preacher take occasion to speak a word or two in praise of Christ. Let me see if I can take him at his counsel and advice. Here at the end, in more than a word or two, help you understand why you ought to praise the Good Shepherd because of this gospel that's before your eyes. First, praise him for his exclusivity. You notice this is an exclusive claim he's making. It's not, I'm a gate. Nor is it, I am a good shepherd. I am the gate. Because there's only one way in. I am the good shepherd. Because there's only one that laid down his life for the sheep. Praise him secondly, not just for his exclusivity, but praise him also for his sovereignty. What is he saying but throughout this passage that he is going to get the ones that later on in this chapter we find out the Father has given to him. All his sheep will come. And that's the third reason you need to praise him today. Praise him for his certainty. Because you love these words that are in there. I hope you love them as much as I do. Look again, verse 9. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Skip down to verse 16 once again. He says, I must bring them also. And they, they will, they will listen to my voice. This gospel of a good shepherd, it's not an announcement of a possibility. It's a declaration of certainty. I am going to buy them back. And I promise every single one will hear my voice in the gospel. That I have purchased. And they will come to me. Which leads to the fourth reason you need to praise him. Praise him for his intimacy. Because if you go back to the metaphor. Notice what he says. Verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Leads them out. If you skip down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Uh, the summons of Christ Jesus in the gospel is no generic announcement. Hey guys, come on. Or get up, y'all, let's go. By name. He knows every single one of his sheep. So maybe you've experienced this before when the gospel is being proclaimed. You feel as though the Lord just grips you by your own ears and is looking straight into your soul. Bob and Becky. Listen, Jack and Jill, I'm here. Michael, Michelle, I'm your good shepherd. He knows you intimately. And amazingly, knowing you intimately, he still says, I'm going to die. For sinners like Bob and Becky, Michael and Michelle, Jack and Jill, which is why you praise him not only for his exclusivity, sovereignty, his certainty, his intimacy, but fifthly, finally, 
Praise Him for His mercy. He's going to soon say in this very gospel, there's no greater love than a man that would lay down his life for his friends. Do you want to know what perfect love looks like? There's no greater love than a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and begins to call them as he's the living good shepherd into the sheepfold. I know my own. My own know me. Make sure you praise Christ today as you're found as a sheep in the good shepherd's sheepfold. Let's pray together. Father, we do simply ask this day that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ where he is seated at your right hand, our good shepherd, crucified, died, buried, and risen, giving life to us. And do help us all to know his voice in the gospel, to hear it and to heed it, and to love him with our hearts, our souls, and our minds. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.